Welcome to Pivot to First. Hi, I'm Mike Seidel. I'm the CTO at Pivot CX. Every day I get to work with some of the brightest minds in the industry with one goal, turning hiring and people strategy into a competitive advantage. Hi, I'm Mike Seidel, CTO here at Pivot CX, five-time startup entrepreneur and, and maybe one or two times success. I'm joined today with uh, by David Bernstein, who is our EVP of corporate development. And I'm really, really excited about our guest today. I have today two people who actually have written a book. They just released it, um, Humanizing Human Capital. And I'm joined today by Salon Shara and Stella Lopeshore. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you for having us. We're delighted to be here. So before we get going in this, um, so your book, it's available at benbellabooks.com slash shop slash humanizing human capital. And there's a special discount code for the book, PivotCX20. And we'll put that in the notes so everybody who's listening can, can go right to the book and, and uh, get the right discount code and everything. So uh, Stella and Solange, um, tell us about your journey so far. How did you get to writing the book, Humanizing Human Capital? So Stella and I were introduced by a mutual friend who saw something um, in terms of a commonality in the way that we think, the, our approach to human capital, um, our creativity and then our innovation, um, and also in a shared cultural background because um, my ancestry and Stella's ancestry comes, well, Stella, not her ancestry, she actually comes <laughs> from that place in Eastern Europe. And by chance, he introduced the two of us. And at our first meeting, we hit it off like discovering a sister from another mother. We were finishing our sentences. We could speak at the you know cognitive level and we could speak at the practical practitioner level. And it was sort of meant to be. And uh, we had tried to work together with limited success. Um, and I suggested to Stella that we actually write a book. And her response to me was, about what? <laughs> I said, about the intersection between what I love and what you love, because there isn't anything out there like that. Um, so what I love is data analytics and taking a very objective and data-driven evidence-based approach to understanding not just human capital performance, but how that impacts enterprise level success, especially sustainable success. And Stella's passion is about the future of work. And we thought it would be interesting to combine the two. And Stella also has a very deep um, and um, broad background in data analytics. It's not that she's not a data analytics person, it's just that what really excites her is that creating a context for applying data analytics to understand the future of work and how organizations should respond to those changes that's, that are going on in the world. And to finish Solange's sentence, <laughs> um, we always look at ourselves and our point of views more of an yin and yang, right? It's very complementary because the, the uh, time spent in the quantitative world and ability to translate what HR does and uh, how it impacts the workforce practices uh, and organizations needs a counterbalance. It needs a little bit more of a, a, 
reframing and questioning and investigation because many times the data will tell you what you portrait to tell you. And at the end of the day, we are talking about human beings. We're talking about families, careers, and uh, it requires a very different degree of care. And that's why there has to be um, both a quantitative but also qualitative uh, uh, investigation of everything we do in the work environment and using the data not only to detect signals but inform decisions that will bring more humanity to the work environment and humanize us as opposed to making us into bits and bytes and, uh, and numbers. You know, one of the things that got me really excited about having both of you on Pivot to First was the, the humanizing, the word humanizing in your book title. We, we at Pivot CX, we, we've really been focused on how do we get humans back into the um, candidate experience. And, and it's been an interesting journey because I think as, as you look at HR, you look at recruitment, you look at, at talent acquisition, you see um, a, a really strong propensity to process people almost infinitely and not yeah. talk to anyone and not have any human relationships. So I'm really looking forward to getting into the discussion about, you know, what does, what does the, um, you know, what are some of those things that we can start humanizing, uh, yeah. you know, in, in the whole human capital world? Uh, I, I can take a little bit of a, a stab at addressing some of that. And we spend quite, a lot of time on the talent acquisition space in the book because we believe it is the beginning of that relationship forming right it's the the, uh, the dating process the uh, back and forth the uh, discovery of the organization and understanding whether that's the right destination for your skills for your capabilities for your passion and we've really deconstructed the talent acquisition into a very mechanical process, very transactional, and we disintermediated that process uh, in so many little details and outsourced um, capability assessment to technology solutions, uh, to AI, to recruiters who are not part of our uh, organization and may not necessarily speak on the behalf of the organization. And all of that dehumanized the process. Yes, it's very uh, quantifiable. You can look at the funnel, you can see the conversion rate, you can um, uh, prioritize the candidates based on whatever the AI informed you that they, their likelihood of staying with the company would be. But at the core, you're absolutely right. It's really dehumanized. And uh, we also see shift to this skill-driven hiring. And one could say that, yes, it's a lot more modern and more advanced way of uh, finding talent. But at the same time, if we think about the role of jobs and job descriptions, it was used primarily to make people interchangeable. So if one person doesn't, uh, it no longer was the organization or they leave or no longer performs based on the job requirements, uh, they can be replaced with somebody else as long as they're meeting whatever it is described in the job description. That's a very dehumanizing way of uh, treating people. If we're going to skills-driven planning, that's even further deconstructing and making people more interchangeable. So we really need to kind of balance and bring more humanizing conversations uh, or points into the into the decision-making around the talent acquisition. Because 
my resume is the list of things I no longer want to do. Just because I have the skills and I've done that work, it doesn't mean I want to continue doing it going forward. I want to grow. I want to pursue something that will stretch me. And the more we can say, hey, this person has this basic core set of skills that are mandatory for the job, and then everything else is learnable. It's, um, it's something that the company can help people learn and develop and, and grow pair up with mentors, etc. the more we'll be able to create that environment where people thrive and they feel they come to work for a career, not just for that particular job or task. So let me take over now as the yin. <laughs> what, what I'm interested in, and this is the perspective that I bring to the book that complements what Stella is talking about, is the discipline of measurement. So I'm actually just writing a chapter now for the Handbook of Board Governance edition, third edition. And, um, and because my PhD is in board governance, you know, that's my, what, what do they say? If you're a hammer, the world looks like a nail. So for me, it's really around governance, governance quality, getting um, business insights to make better decisions, to drive sustainable business outcomes. And one of the most expensive things for an organization to do is recruit talent because they invest a lot of time and energy in people that they will never hire and will never generate a return on that investment. So if I'm a board director, I actually want to know how good we're doing on recruitment and whether or not we're getting a return on the dollars and the people, the soft and the hard investments that we make um, in recruitment. And if those numbers are not going up, if we're not ever improving our recruitment performance, why? And as Stella said, it, it's the beginning of the value chain. So we want to make sure that we have diverse slates of candidates. We want to make sure that we are um, creating a humanizing um, recruitment experience because we only have one chance to make a good first impression that can last for an employee's lifetime, right? Whatever their tenure is. But we also want to be mindful of the fact that there are numbers that can be created, metrics that can be created around our recruitment experience and that it doesn't have to be a sunk cost. It could actually be something that generates a positive return for the organization, especially if we're thinking about recruiting for a career, not just a job, right? And the thing that boards and governance experts want to see and investors, because now investors are, are, have asked the SEC to make sure that public companies disclose information like attrition rate and tenure, rate, right? So these are things that are going to be exposed. Boards should be thinking about how is our recruitment and our retention working to drive value? And some of the things that we talk about in the book um, are the metrics around um, diverse candidate slates, right? Time to, um, the, the time to fill a job. Mm-hmm. Offer acceptance rate. If we're hiring for a career and not for a job, the time to promotion. And it's not just governance people that want to understand this. It's employees that want to understand this, 
right? They want to know, do I have a career? How long is it going to take me to progress? What are the opportunities, not only for mobility or advancement, but for training and development? And all of these things build the brand that translates into higher offer acceptance rates, which then generates better return for the organization. So we can take these practices and actually quantify them, benchmark them, measure them over time, and then calculate the accretive impact, the profit impact of better processes, even at the very beginning of the employee life cycle to the organization. Yeah, I, I, I think it's the critical thing there about linkage, right? I, 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 there's so much conversation around, around I think, and making it an I know is a bit of a, right? I mean, this is where, right, so, so long in, in the recruiting profession, there's a lot of, well, I think, you know, one of the things that I think we could all agree no one goes to school to become a recruiter or a recruiting leader, right? <laughs> you might go to school to get marketing degrees and finance degrees, but people fall into recruiting and it doesn't necessarily mean because they had a business background. So weaponizing TA leadership with the ability to be able to say, exactly. these are the things that have the key impact to yes. business outcomes, right? That creating that linkage. Yeah. yeah. And rationalize and justify their existence. Yeah. You, no. you know, you you two brought up you brought up uh, Solange, you brought up a metric that I, I think is really funny. Um, Sherm did some research a few years back on on offer acceptance rate, and they found that it was I think ninety six percent of candidates accept the first job that they're offered when they do a job search. And one of the things I think is just fascinating about talent acquisition is we've done everything we can in talent acquisition to slow things down to the point that we're probably not making the first offer. And I kind of wonder, aside <laughs> just that that little disconnect, I'm wondering if one of the things that, that we're all missing in, in, in recruitment is we're just missing out on quickly establishing good relationships and then, yeah. and then quickly getting to the yeah. point. I, it just seems like so much recruiting out there. Um, you know, we spend three, four weeks processing candidates before we try to reach out to them. And we're creating these absolutely horrible experiences out there that, that, that damage the brand. Forget about oh. to hire that person. That person is now an ambassador for your brand saying, oh, I, you know, I applied for a job at XYZ company and they ignored me. Well, I'm not going to buy their products and you shouldn't either. Right. Well, when you overlay that with something that, that David likes to tell people, which is, is it 97%? You always like to tell people uh, recruiting is 97% rejection. You know, it's the, the vast majority of our interactions we have with candidates are going to end not in a you're hired. They're going to end with a not now or a not ever. Did you know that 84% of statistics are made up on the spot? <laughs> well, they might be. I think that 97% is David's favorite though. And that's kind of interesting because you're saying 97% of candidates accept their first job offer, but on the company side, what is the offer acceptance rate? So Stella and I did some analysis on a um, fast food, what's not called, not called fast food anymore. What's this? Quick serve. So, yeah. Whatever the new term is. Um, for an organization, um, they had, um, so in that industry at that time, the um, average attrition rate was 60%. And they guessed their attrition rate was about 30%. So 
So they felt really good about the fact that they weren't losing their servers and their, you know, their frontline people um, as quickly as their competitors, that their offer acceptance rate was only 10%. Only 10% wow. of the offers that they made were accepted by the candidates, which meant that for 10 people they made offers to, forget about interviewing, they made offers to only one accepted. And you can only imagine how much, I mean, what we calculated was for their current attrition rate, um, it was costing them something like $16 million just to stay at the same headcount and not grow. And that's because their offer acceptance rate, they invested so much time to make an offer that only one out of 10 candidates accepted. And that's wow, fascinating, right? So to add to this uh, exploration of different measurements, in the book, we tackle the fact that we primarily focus on one set of measurements and we put them all in one big bucket. It will be talent acquisition measurements as opposed to saying there are ways to differentiate, right? One, there is a program uh, efficiency and offer acceptance is an example of that. How effective are we at creating compelling uh, um, brand image, attracting the right kind of candidate and getting them all through the funnel? But there are other aspects, right? Other kinds of measurements. One is how it impacts experience, so experience-related measurements. What it's like to be a candidate when you don't get a response or when you get ghosted or you don't hear for a long time only to follow up and find out you didn't get selected and nobody bothered to even let you know. So it's an experienced set of measurements. And then the last category is the impact on the bottom line. Because if you are not able to find the right candidate or get them up to speed fast enough or they quit within 90 days of hire, or they get, don't get to um, to deliver on whatever you hire them to do. All of this will have a negative impact on your bottom line or top line or customer experience or whatever the business outcomes that you're trying to impact. So looking at it from three different lens will help you understand what can you do better as far as the HR program delivery? What can you do better about improving the experience of the candidate and then how can you improve the impact on the bottom line? Because that will give you the ammunition to say, we need to invest in better equipment or better technology or better uh, development of these candidates. Um, and it will help make better decisions overall as a company. Well, Stella, that's, you, you hit on something that uh, I was really looking forward to talking to you about in particular. And, and let's talk a little bit about what a lot of CEOs really struggle with measuring, and that's ROI on human capital. Um, how do you approach understanding ROI on people that, that maybe aren't directly connected to revenue? You know, most employees aren't directly connected to revenue. Sales is easy to understand. If you bill hours, billable people are easy to understand. But most companies have a huge workforce of people that are somewhere in between those two, two extremes. Um, you know, how do you approach understanding ROI on people uh, that maybe aren't directly connected with revenue or costs? So I'll take that question. Um, so uh, the simple answer is 
there is a formula for that. There's an algorithm to calculate human capital return on investment. Um, and it's a pretty simple algorithm. It is, um, it has been used in the academic community and academic research for maybe 40 years now. I know, right? It's like 40 years we've been talking about this and it's only get, gotten to the point where we're doing podcasts and writing books today. Um, the ISO, the International Standardization Organization in Switzerland, has released a standard called the ISO 3414, or Human Governance and Transparency Standard. And they define HCROI in that standard, which is consistent with what they and also with what the SEC and the World Economic Forum are looking at right now. So this whole idea of transforming human capital into financial metrics or financial indicators is a movement that's building. It's like a tsunami. It's going to be a big wave that wash, washes over everyone. So to answer your question, we um, recommend that organizations look at the very top line, at the very, you know, sort of in the aggregate. Mm -hmm. the algorithm to understand overall human capital return on investment and then benchmark yourself to either your peers or you know a, you know your peer well, group if you've got an iso standard you've got a global standard hopefully you can benchmark against that's industry exactly. standards and norms and all of that and really get a good idea of uh, what good is and where you fit in in the market right you're, you're exactly right so we can calculate HCROI at the organizational level, human capital return on investment. It's actually measuring the return on every dollar invested in human capital. Some people call it the total cost of workforce. It's something that the SEC is considering to require all public companies to disclose is an auditable total cost of workforce disclosure number, which means it goes on their income statement, right? Um, and it's a HCROI is really easy to calculate. Um, it's brothers and sisters include human capital value add, human economic value add, so HCBA, HEBA, um, human capital market value for public companies. You can actually attribute a market value to your employees, to your human capital. All these metrics have been used, they're correlated to financial outcomes. So that's how we figure out whether or not we're doing a good job in human capital in terms of sustainable contribution to corporate or enterprise level financial success. And then wherever you've got a P&L, if you've got four divisions and they each has a P&L, you can calculate HCROI for each one of those divisions and track and monitor division performance. Or if you are a private equity firm and you've got portfolio companies, you can use this as a way to understand whether or not your investments in human capital are actually creating sustainable um, contribution to corporate financial performance. So now that we said all of that, <laughs> um, there, um, that, and I completely lost my train of thought. Um, we want to unpack, oh, I know what I was going to say. So Stella and I did some research at the conference board 
and we actually looked at 100 companies that participated in a survey, rather large on average, about a billion dollars in market capitalization, ranging from about 200 million to over 46 billion in um, revenue. So we had a range of companies. And these 100 companies, half of them did not use data analytics as part of their ongoing HR processes, and half of them did. Half of them had dedicated human capital analytics people. And what did we find? We found those organizations that had dedicated human capital analysts embedded in their HR function, creating metrics for, data, for decision making, had HCROI three times higher than organizations that did it. So it's like me saying to you, give me a dollar and I'll mm -hmm. give you a return, right? Maybe okay, this this is blow, it kind of blows my mind a little bit because in most companies, um, you're what's the biggest expense? People. And and so you're, you know, you're saying what you're telling me here is we've got a lot of companies out there that really aren't paying attention to really fundamental performance data right. on how they're they're doing with people, and it's their biggest expense. Their biggest expense, and here's the thing that's really going to blow your mind. So if you're an HR person, a three-time higher HCROI is a big deal. But if you're a business person, what does that translate into? And what we found in our research is those companies that adopted a human capital analytics approach that had higher HCROI were actually outperforming their competitor group by 25% on profitability. Mm. You want to deliver returns to your stakeholder, your shareholder, you should really think about incorporating human capital analytics to manage your HR function that will deliver more profit. Why? Because people that are better managed produce better results in terms of productivity. And when you make better decisions, you avoid cost. And when you pump up the top line and you decrease your expense, your profits go up. Imagine that. <laughs> I mean, it's very, it's so easy to say, and it's amazing how many companies just miss, miss the boat completely on this. Did you do any research, by the way, on that and, and correlate to market cap or market valuation um, as, as a metric instead of just profit? Um, we did, but off the top of my head, I don't really remember what the numbers are. Um, we're, we're actually doing some research now in the healthcare sector. And what we're finding, okay. what we're finding is yeah. that I know that you're, you know, you Maybe profitability isn't the right metric. Maybe it's market cap or market value. Well, we can get to that through the HCMB, human capital market value and human capital value add. Um, in the healthcare industry, it's really interesting because what we're looking at, especially for healthcare, where their outcomes aren't really profit driven because 99.9% .9 of healthcare organizations, I'm talking about hospitals and clinics, are, sure. are nonprofits they're really looking at quality outcomes, right? So that's how hospitals are measured. That's what where the reimbursements come from, right? Based on how uh, patient quality outcomes. And what we found was there is a strong and statistically significant correlation between a hospital and healthcare organizations 
HCROI and quality outcomes. So the better their human capital performs, the better the quality outcomes. So, and the better the quality outcomes, the higher their reimbursement rates, which means the more profitable they are. So I'm wondering if, in, in all of this as there, there are areas where you can um, identify that all companies should be looking at that have probably have the greatest impact, but certainly what works well at one company may not work well at another. And so um, create, figuring out how you do those experiments and what are the linkages, um, right? are, are you seeing the same thing? That's my sense of things is that there are target zones, like you said, talent acquisition begins a journey that's a huge investment, um, but, but not every company would respond the same way uh, if they did the same things, right? There's not like a cookie cutter approach. Are you so being able to do these experiments and find the linkages is, is that kind of absolutely well, yeah so the yeah. way we the way we approach and recommend is not to do a traditional best practice uh, right you don't look at what everybody else is doing and think that that will hundred percent fit your cookie mold right it is really specific to the organization and we advise to use best evidence and you need to experiment you need to look at your own data at your competitive landscape at your at the nature of your relationship with uh, the workforce and look at your specific outcomes that you want to impact and the beauty of digital lives that we live nowadays especially in the work environment is that we have a lot of data uh, that we can analyze. We can capture it along the entire journey, not just at the beginning of it. We can capture all three of those categories, the experience measures, the program efficiency measures, and the business impact measures along the entire journey. Um, and then looking at outcomes we want to impact and finding the earliest intervention point to make a positive impact on that outcome. So, so if you're uh, hashtag best evidence, right? Let, exactly. Let's get that on the record here, right? <laughs> yeah, you got yeah. It. yeah. Yeah. Hashtag best evidence, and, not best practice. Best practices right. don't work. Best evidence does. No, that's kind of that's interesting because you see so many organizations where I think decision making comes from the highest paid person's opinion, yeah. or the loudest, noisiest, squeaky wheel they can find, and and evidence seems to be the best. It's always the best. It's amazing how often you see hippos and squeaky wheels. Yeah. So that, that goes um, to my favorite, my favorite comment, which is, you know, Spock would say the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few and data analysis using big data on human capital helps us understand the needs of the many. And that's, you know, why we have this idea and what we say in the book is um, using data, a data analytics approach, using a rigorous approach is not dehumanizing. It's actually humanizing because we are, we are serving the needs of more people than, as you say, the hippo or the squeaky wheel. Yeah. So as you said, though, there, you know, half, at least half the companies don't have an analytics team. Right. And most people didn't, like I said, that you didn't go to school to become a recruiter and yet you fall into a business function that is high critical impact. Any advice for, for companies where TA leadership is, you know, where they don't have that kind of uh, resource support to kind of 
do these kind of uh, linkage analysis kind of studies. Any thoughts for, yeah, how do you begin the journey, especially if you don't have a team? I guess is maybe the fastest way to ask that question. Yeah. I'd say that a lot of TA functions are quite quantitative, right? You know how to use an Excel spreadsheet. It's important to just start somewhere. Most of the organizations that have mature analytics functions have not started with you know huge investments. Most of us started with very small uh, uh, teams, if if any, and started with an Excel spreadsheet and a bunch of data and a curiosity. It's all about starting somewhere and accumulating data along the way and then coming up with the right questions. Once you have the right question, uh, then it's much easier to look through the data and find the answer to address that. And those questions will come from business leaders. Most of the time, paying attention is all that is needed and saying, oh, your question is, how many people am I going to have by the end of the year? That means I need to find out how many I have right now. That means I need to go to my uh, HRIS team. That means I need to go find out how many I can feed or I have budget to do. So that means I have a conversation with the finance department. That means how many people will I have, um, will I be able to recruit this year? And I have those measurements and talent acquisition. And putting the story together will help me give an evidence to my business leaders, counterparts, and say, here's the answer to your question. And if we're able to invest in a little bit more technology or a little bit more skills, I can enrich the complexity of the answers I can bring to you. And it's a relationship and it's a journey. Analytics cannot be done overnight. It's really going to take time to not only establish the infrastructure and the team and capabilities, but also bring everybody else up to speed on the power of uh, having those answers and what you can do with them. And um, it's also a mindset. So we talk about, in the book, we talk about the four different levels of data analytics. Um, and um, descriptive analytics is really easy to do. Stella said there's so much data that's already tracked in spreadsheets. Descriptive analytics is simply summarizing information to answer the question, what happened, right? What happened? Um, and you don't need a lot of skill to be able to do that. You can just create prevalence tables for, we got 12 of these types of hires and nine of those and, right? So you measure over a period of time, what happened? And then the next level up is um, diagnostic analytics, which answers the question, why did that happen? why did we lose mostly women over the last six months in this function, right? So it requires that you understand what happened and then you can begin to explore why something happened to get to the root cause. And then the next two levels of analytics are um, predictive and prescriptive, which really require a little bit more sophistication, but it's really a mindset to answer the question, what happened and why did that happen? And if, people in HR really had that question, those questions in mind, they're already adopting an analytics mindset because you can't answer those questions unless you have data. Yeah, I've often well, you know, I'll reminded my, people. I'll put my business hat on here. And one of the things I, I run into a lot with people that work either for me or with me or whatever is when they'll come at, come with a problem and, and it's mostly described emotionally and, and abstract 
qualitatively completely no numbers, it's really hard to you know go, we need to fix that or we need to do something about it. But then when you have somebody come in and go, look, you know, our, our, we're getting more of our applications rejected. You know, we, we put out a hundred offers last month. We only had two takers. We got to do something. That becomes something that, that's a five alarm fire that, that everybody understands. Yeah. But when it's just qualitative, it's, it's so, so hard. So that, that's wonderful. That one of the reasons that we wrote the book and so I'll let you address this as well is because we want to give HR people a language that they can use when they speak to other managers, when they speak to executive management. So a CFO will go into the CEO's office and say, you know that last deal that we just did? Well, we didn't hit our you know, IRR, or NPV was off, it didn't have the right ROE, we're not getting the, we didn't get those numbers. And the CEO knows exactly what he's saying. But an HR person goes into a CEO's office and says, oh, we've got a problem with engagement and our culture isn't good. The CEO doesn't know what to do with that information. Like, okay, I, okay, I hear the words. I don't really know what that means. There's no implication for forward action. But if you go in and you say our HCROI dropped 2% over the last quarter, and that's a corresponding drop in EBITDA by 10%, I think I have a solution. I think our problem is in our recruiting. We can make that more efficient and get our HCROI back up by 2 or 3%. Then the CEO goes, oh, you're speaking my language. Yeah, you, you had the CEO at EBITDA. Exactly. You had the CEO at EBITDA. That's true. So let's talk a little bit about uh, something that I know David and I just got back from HR Tech. And we... Uh, David, I don't know how many of these you saw, but I, I think it was like every third or fourth booth had some kind of up, upskilling stuff on their on their display. I mean, it was it was I, people just it was almost like they they heard upskilling is hot, so let's just put upskilling on our our display. But it, it's something I know I know that a lot of companies don't really understand is is like what this whole skills based hiring thing is really all about. What's what's the deal there? Um, talk, talk a little bit about upskilling and, and, you know, is this a, a, really a skills problem or is it something else? It is something else, of course. Um, many times we assume <laughs> that um, everything that is happening in the work environment and uh, moving to become a digital business and adopting all sorts of technologies and uh, sprinkling AI and other scary abbreviations into the mix is going to create an environment where organization will be more efficient. And we do invest a lot of those technologies and innovation in the experience of consumers because that's where the business comes from. That's where the relationships and uh, our raison d'etre as an organization comes from. And we do not think that our ability to deliver is reliant upon our people to understand what a good experience is and be able to deliver it using the internal tools. We delegate the use of this digital technology to our CIO or uh, CTO, and we create the incentive to minimize the cost, right? It's all about 
preserving the base, securing the base, making sure that we don't have anything um, out of the ordinary happen, but we're not gonna invest much in the experience of the workers to be able to interact with those technologies better because that's a cost center. It's not a revenue generation. And if we as human at work don't experience uh, a good experience by interacting with that, how can we be expected to deliver that to the customers, number one. Number two, when we think about our relationship with smartphones, right? My favorite question is how much upskilling did you have to go through in order to be able to use it, right? So it's not really the technology that it's becoming so much more advanced and therefore we as humans need to be upskilled. It's really a design problem. We have not invested in the right experience design upfront. We left a lot of these technologies to be designed by engineers for engineers. They expect you to know and understand how everything works and therefore be able to utilize. We're not investing in integration of their data sets and in a holistic experience. And then we expect everybody else to spend all the time they have <laughs> uh, in addition to their you know, already full uh, uh, so, full day to to learn independently. Okay, so so there's a, a, a very large uh, very large company in the travel industry that is famous because they uh, their computer system their order entry system is so hard to operate they require a bachelor's degree for people to work as <laughs> rental car lot attendants. Is this a perfect example where they could have invested a little bit in uh, maybe that making that software maybe easier to use so they don't have to hire college grads to uh, wash windows on cars? Imagine that, right? And there is so much opportunity for all organizations to invest just a little bit more in that experience to make it easier to do your work. And as a result, the productivity improvements, the satisfaction, the uh, engagement level will have a dramatic impact on people's ability to feel that somebody cares about their experience. It's not just about the bottom line and squeezing more out of, uh, and doing more with less. <laughs> and so, so this whole upskilling thing, what you're, you're saying is, is it's not really about skills. It, it's really about design. Correct. And it's about designing the job, designing the workplace, designing all of this. So all of it. it and and it, it also, it, you know, there's also a positive benefit to investing in employees, however you define that, right? Um, I'll give you an example. In a company where I was the head of HR, um, we had some attrition. I mean, when I first got there, we had like 38% attrition. And by the time I left, we were down to about 10. But you um, left. Um, I, I <laughs> she was part of the 10. <laughs> I, I did leave because I followed the CEO to another company. So okay. we all, we all left together. Um, but I did, um, I did analytics. So I answered the question, what happened and why did it happen? And what I learned was if we could, we had sort of, um, a pattern in our attrition and attrition and retention are sort of two sides of the same coin. And what I discovered from just looking at historic information to understand what happened is people were leaving at the end between their second and the third year of tenure, between their seventh and their eighth year of tenure, 
and then at the 15 year mark, between 15 and 16 years. And what I discovered is if I can keep you for three years, I'll have you until you're with us for seven years. And then at the seven year mark, I'm to get you over that hump of the seven to eight year, and then I'll have you for 15 years. And so what we did is we answered the question, what happened? And we answered the question, why did that happen, right? And we designed programs, interventions to keep people over the, through those times when they would leave us. Now, did, was it perfect? No. Did we have more attrition in years five, six, right? We had a little bit more attrition, but investing a little money generated two more years of productivity out of a highly, you know, a, a competent worker. They weren't in there to learn how to do the job, right? And when we looked at the numbers, it was unbelievable. It was like $100,000 of investment generates like $10 million of productivity. So that, and, yeah, that what happened and why did it happen? That, that to me, again, I, I know I've said it a couple of times here, but that's linkage, right? That's the um, linkage. A, a quick story. I, I had a, a, someone that told me where they, they had high the hourly workforce, high, high attrition. The, 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 the what was the attrition, the what happened. They were eventually able to track it back to how they were sourcing for candidates because they were going out to parking lots and setting up Winnebago's and recruiting people as they came out of cars because they needed just hourly workers or anybody coming into the mall. And it turns out they were stationing themselves in zip codes where people, most of the people were not near public transportation, easy access to transportation. And so when they linked it all together, they saw that, right, eventually it got wearing to have to take three buses to get to work kind of story. So they would quit and take another job for about the same amount of money with less transportation issues, right? When they changed where they did that same sourcing, but they just changed the zip codes they were doing it in, right? Yeah. Yeah. So and understanding those linkages, right? That's exactly right. Same story with a private equity firm based in Boston. And most of the partners came out of one school, right? One high-end school. And one of the partners came from not the high-end school, but also a very good school. And um, there was a lot of resistance from the partners to recruit at other schools other than their high-end school. And when they did the analytics, they found out that recruiting at that second school actually generated stickier, more productive, happier, right? More successful employees than the high-end school. And he won his argument. He said, look, I'm showing you the numbers. <laughs> you know, let's spend more of our resources recruiting from a source that generates better sustainable performance for us. And when you... When you do the numbers, it's hard for somebody to refute the facts when they're supported by data. And that's what we want HR people to start doing, right? Don't, you know, we what we say is HR people usually cross their fingers and hope for the best. We don't have to live in that world anymore. We can live in a data-driven, evidence-based world where we know what we're saying and we can prove it out with numbers and we can go to our management with sound rationale and financial justification for our ask. Has well, I'm going to give you one little extra, extra thing to put on that, that point, and that's this, that as you look forward, uh, it will be uh, 2046 before the United States workforce starts growing again. 
If you're a CEO or a CFO, you really do need to listen to your sure HR I'm people. Alive then. <laughs> What's that? I'm not sure I'm going to be alive by then. No, but if you think about it from a business perspective, yeah. it is just so critical right now to pay attention to human capital because it is going to be the thing over the next 20 years that's going to separate the companies that win from the companies that um, it is, are no longer an ongoing business concern. It is going to be the limiting factor, especially for the U.S., where 80% of our GDP is driven by the service economy, and you cannot deliver a service economy without people. So it is going to be the critical, you know, factor in sustainable success. Um, and um, you know, we we do have to change. And what Stella and I talk about in the book is the social contract between employer and employee. And the management needs to start thinking differently. Needs to expand the way they think about employees and the value of employees and the investments that they make in them. Um, and I hope we, you know, do a good job talking about that in the book. Well, for me, I can't wait. I can't wait to read it cover to cover. So to, let's go ahead and wrap things up a little bit here. So we always ask our guests a couple of questions. And the first question is really easy. What, what business book have both of you read that, that really was, um, just kind of the thing that got went. You went, aha! This is it. I get it. And it can't be your own book, right? <laughs> no, uh, of course oh, not. We, oh, yeah. It could be. No, um, I will go with Humanocracy by Gary Hamill, and the principle of treating people and empowering them to make decisions over their work and their ability to deliver on. Uh, customer expectations or whatever the the uh, business outcomes that they're expected to deliver on it's a really uh the concept that i think will probably help the future business leaders um adapt to the changing work environment and expectations of the workers as well so i anyone who has the the who is intrigued by new ways of orchestrating work and new business um, models to organize your workforce, I would encourage them to read that book. And I'm gonna give you a really wonky answer and basically say it's my intermediate and in my advanced accounting book. Totally understand, totally get it. <laughs> intangible assets. Um, and I think that's what employees are is, you know, I used to say to my boss, um, I would be so happy if I could just nail their little feet to the ground and they wouldn't leave at night. How do I get them to come back and be productive and engaged? Um, and I think that most business, I mean, CEOs say employees are our greatest asset, but it always feels like a platitude. Um, and, you know, my accounting discipline really helps me think through how do we um, attribute value to something that's intangible? And how do we sustain the contribution of that intangible asset to um, enterprise level results? So I don't recommend people go out and read intermediate and advanced accounting books, but that's what sort of changed my mindset. Well, it's definitely not light, light uh, evening reading, but might put you to sleep a little bit. Oh yeah, that'll, that'll definitely do that. <laughs> okay, uh, this, this one's easy. Favorite movie? 
And we'll start with you, Solange. Um, the remake of the Thomas Crown Affair with um, Pierce Brosnan and um, Renee Russo. Okay, Stella. Uh, I'll have to go with uh, Inside Out, which is a cartoon. It's an animated uh, movie for children, but it's really good at describing uh, how our brain works. All the neuroscience that uh, uh, <laughs> seems too complex, but from a human perspective, it's really uh, easy way to comprehend. And it's good for adults too, not just for children. Can you see the yin and the yang here? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Okay, and then last thing, is there anything that, that you'd like to share with the audience that we didn't cover? Okay, I can start. I think one aspect of uh, traditional HR ways of managing the workforce is the, uh, the, the inward focus on creating programs and creating um, HR processes and policies that benefit the employees. And we need to start expanding that notion to the workforce because there's more uh, type of workers involved in doing the work on behalf of our organization. And the more inclusive we can become in catering and delivering whatever benefits or programs or uh, offerings to the holistic uh, workforce uh, composition, not just the employees who are already privileged to have the stability of employment, the more we will be able to create better societies and more stable and resilient organizations because that will impact our brand, our ability to attract the kind of talent we need to survive in the next century. And I would say um, HR and HR professionals in the next five years are gonna be the most key critical people and function to the, an organization. And we, that's, you know, Stella and I teach because we are trying to educate the next generation of HR professionals um, to have um, financial literacy and data analytics skills. And I think that if you want a successful career in HR, those are the two key critical skills that you're going to have to develop because that's what's going to be required in the next five years to not just have a seat at the table, because we have a seat at the table. Sometimes I say we actually should be the table because everything requires human capital, but to be a meaningful and um, active partner at the table you have to speak the language of business, and that language is analytic and finance. Salon Sharah, Stella Lopeshaw, authors of Humanizing Human Capital, thanks for joining us today on Pivot CX, uh, on our Pivot's first podcast. Really enjoyed having you, and uh, looking forward to uh, getting my copy of the book. Again, you can get a copy of uh, Humanizing Human Capital from ben, benbellabooks.com slash shop slash human dash capital slash humanizing dash human capital. Let me read that again. HTTPS benbellabooks.com shop slash shop slash humanizing human capital. You can use discount code pivotcx20 um, 
to get a little discount on the book and look down in the notes and uh, below because you'll see a link and you can just go ahead and click on it there. Thank you so much, uh, Stella and Solange for joining us. Thanks, David, again for being here with us. Have a great afternoon. Thank you for having us. Bye.